For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how the current show at the Museum of Contemporary Art blends 80s electronic pop with an obscure piece of World War I history. Find out about Asia's fishing cats from a U of A scientist who studies them. A conversation with Rain Pryor about finding identity in her one-woman show, Fried Chicken and Latkes. And Robert Beverly shares poems dedicated to his father and mother. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. To protect the British Navy during World War I, artist Norman Wilkinson suggested a technique called dazzle camouflage. It relied on painting shifting patterns of stripes and contrasting colors on the vessels to confuse observers as to the ship's actual size and position. Statistically, it proved underwhelming as a defense, and advances in technology and aircraft swiftly made dazzle camouflage obsolete. But as an art movement, it sparked a lot of interpretation that continues today, as evidenced in the current show at the Museum of Contemporary Art Tucson called Dazzled. It includes an exhibit on Dazzle Ships, the 1983 album by the English electronic duo Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, or OMD. Members Andy McCluskey and Paul Humphreys came to Tucson to open the MOCA show with a concert. And I talked with McCluskey about this unusual intersection of music, history, and art, and how the album Dazzle Ships was not really considered a success when it was released. We had consciously decided to be more political. So we leapt into kind of Cold War politics. We stripped our sampling down. We didn't cope the songs in the kind of sweet melodies that we'd been using. And um, yeah, we kind of scared people off. Of course, what's happened now, you know, over 30, what is it, seven years later, is that that Dazzle Ships album is now considered to be a masterpiece. And we listen to it and other people listen to it. And the world's caught up. The world is accustomed to hearing different things all fractured and you know juggling several different bits of media at the same time but in 1983 it just did seem a little bit too far ahead of its time so after what seemed like the creative stumble of dazzle ships when did omd get your groove back when was it that you did something that you felt like oh okay all right we're all right we're we we can look forward now and not just have to look back on dazzle ships for the moment that is a tricky question because there will be some of our European fans who will say we didn't get our groove back until about 2013. <laughs> no, seriously, they will. No, that, that's, that's tough. <laughs> um, the reality, of course, is that on this side of the Atlantic, our 
North American audience really tuned into us from the mid-80s onwards because that's when we had a record label in the States that was really supporting us and helping us to get to a broader audience. And also pop radio in the United States was catching up with where Europe had been. Exactly. So the wheels were turning. You know, I mean, it was amazing. You know, we were selling millions of records in Europe from 1980 onwards, and yet we couldn't get arrested in the States until 84, 85. What we had to adapt to, I think, was that because of the lack of sales of the Dazzle Ships album, you know, we are artists in a commercial environment. And quite simply, if you don't sell the records, you don't get to do another one. You get dropped. And so we, we definitely, consciously and unconsciously, dialed ourselves back a little bit from the precipice and from some of the more experimental work we were doing. And we just said, OK, let's just for, for a while now write some songs. The problem was, the more we tried to break America, it was costing us a fortune. We were going out supporting people like the Thompson Twins and Power Station and Depeche Mode and we as the support band were getting paid insufficient to cover our costs so actually by the time we got to the end of the 80s when the, the original band split up we'd sold I think 10 million albums and over 15 million singles and we owed the record company over 1 million pounds and it wasn't because we'd been living a luxurious lifestyle Was there a conscious choice to make Telegraph somewhat analog and, and also you know, connected to the, uh, the birth of telecommunications in a way? One of the things about Telegraph is that it was just before we really went digital. So the, uh, the vibraphone loop, the da 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 is actually us playing the vibraphone loop. It, it's, it's not sampled, it's not digital, it's manual. And the bass, is manual, it's a manual synth bass. And this is something that always used to amuse us because people thought we were, you know, the future of music. And it was all played by hand. I mean, some of those early records, I listen to them now. You've, you've become accustomed to things being lined up on a computer now and quantized perfectly. Things are flamming all over the place with bad timing on our early records because it was all played by hand. There was no computer, no sequencer. So Telegraph is, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite, it's quite analog. It was pretty much kind of the last thing that really was because the next album, we started to use a, a, a computer, a, C, a Fairlight CMI computer. I think one of the things that Paul Humphreys and I really enjoy now is the freedom to go back and be as experimental as we wanted to be in the early days. And also, but we do walk a tightrope. When I talk about experimental, I want to do a musical experiment that is also musical. You know, you can make something that's experimental music that does not bear repeated listening. It's like, okay, what happens if you put this, this, and this together? It sounds bloody awful, so I don't want to hear it again. So trying to actually come up with a new idea that's also musical is the hardest tightrope act to undertake, and that's what we are trying to do these days, because that's what we used to do completely unconsciously, 
back in the early days. And, you know, we don't want to now just make records because we want to sell records, because quite frankly, we don't sell enough records to make any money anyway. It's the back catalogue and touring that, that pays the bills now, so we don't need to worry about what we sell. As a survivor of the 80s in terms of being part of the fan base, being someone who came of age in that decade, I often think that what people think of as the 1980s is really 1977 to 1984. That everything significant that happened and all of the tropes of the 80s, from computers to Rubik's Cubes to, you know, MTV, that those were the, the peak years. And that after 84, that decade was actually very different. Um, what's your reaction or reflection on that? I completely agree. The best stuff in the 80s was the end of the 70s and the very early 80s. That was when the, uh, the vanguard was moving things forward, changing the world, and the really exciting music happened. What happened after 84 was treading water, copycats, pastiches, and, and the beginning of the shift into uh, house and techno and, um, and grunge starting to, as a reaction against 80s synth pop. My guest was Andy McCluskey of Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Dazzled, OMD, Memphis Design and Beyond is on display at the Museum of Contemporary Art in downtown Tucson through April 12th. If someone tells you there's a mammal that loves the water, is a remarkable swimmer, and an expert at fishing, you might think they're talking about an otter, a seal, or maybe a dolphin. But in the following conversation, we're going to introduce you to fishing cats, a medium-sized wild cat that thrives in aquatic environments. Tony Paniagua brings us an interview with a University of Arizona scientist and founder of the Fishing Cat Conservancy, who says this fascinating feline deserves more attention and protection. Dr. Ashra Naidu, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Tony. Fishing cats. Ever since I started telling people that we were doing an interview about this, everybody said, what? Let me know more about this feline. Right. They are really cool. I call them fishing awesome. <laughs> they are one of about 38 to 40 other wild cat species on the planet. They don't get as much attention as the tigers and lions and leopards and jaguars do, but they are really cool because they're about twice the size of a domestic cat. They love water. Um, they are wetland adapted. They love fish. Of course, that's where the name fishing cat comes from. You'll find this cat go into water and come out of water and not shake its coat at all. It just The water just uh, drips off of it and, and it just walks away without a care and uh, they live in some of the most unique ecosystems on the planet. And those are mangrove areas in Asia and Southeast Asia. Can you tell us about that, please? That's right, yeah. The mostly coastal mangroves in South and Southeast Asia, but also inland wetlands like uh, river deltas and swamps. These uh, mangroves in, in Southeast Asia, many of them are very uh, restricted now because of a lot of threats, particularly um, deforestation because of aquaculture and agriculture. And that's the biggest threat to the fishing cat right now. Um, you know, I'm, I'd like to think that they're probably more endangered than the tiger, A, because not many people know about them, both locally and globally. Uh, but they're also 
probably endangered because of this habitat loss that has happened. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, these cats are restricted to um, m many of these small patches of wetlands and mangroves in, in 11 range countries in Southeast Asia, all the way from Pakistan to Indonesia. Uh, however, uh, you know, in, in some of these uh, countries um, like Malaysia and Indonesia, fishing cats are deemed extinct. Um, and but in many of the, uh, many of these countries like India, Bangladesh, Nepal, Cambodia, they're still surviving large populations of fishing cats, including Sri Lanka as well. You are originally from India. You've been at the University of Arizona for 11 years. When did you first discover the fishing cats and why did you become so fascinated by these animals? Well, uh, yeah, I, I am originally from India. And this is my fake accent, by the way. <laughs> My original accent is this, but if I talk like this, I don't think anybody on the show will understand me. So I will try to stick to my fake accent. Okay. <laughs> um, I came here to the University of Arizona actually because of an opportunity that uh, my PhD advisor, Dr. Melanie Culver, provided me uh, for uh, to study uh, mountain lions. Um, and this was back when I was studying tigers and leopards in South Central India. And uh, after I got here, I was deeply involved in the study of cats um, because uh, I went from studying tigers and leopards to mountain lions and bobcats here in our very own backyards. And I was able to apply many modern scientific techniques and that I learned here as a wildlife conservationist and while studying for my master's and PhD in wildlife conservation and management from the University of Arizona. So I became very fascinated with trying to do something as a cat conservationist and as a cat researcher for these small cats that weren't getting so much global attention. And I decided, what is the most endangered cat after the tiger from the country where I'm from? And that happened to be the fishing cat. And I said, okay, here's where we're going to create an initiative dedicated to protecting fishing cats throughout their range in South and Southeast Asia. And one of the ways you're doing that is by incorporating people in these efforts, because without them, you would not be successful, right? Absolutely. It's uh, uh, most of our work, and in, in fact, how we define our work is community-based research and conservation to help protect the fishing cat and its globally important mangrove habitat. Um, and that's our mission, is to engage as many people as we can locally uh, empower them, provide them with all the resources that we can uh, in order to help them protect their backyards. And our idea is to uh, combine modern science with traditional ecological knowledge. Um, in one example, uh, there was a Chenchu tribal, a local tribe in coastal South India. Uh, he was uh, His name is Moshi. He used to be involved with hunting fishing cats and otters. And uh, as we built trust with him and involved him in our conservation efforts and employed him in conservation, he is now a full-time conservationist helping protect these cats and educating his entire community not to hunt fishing cats and otters and all these endangered species that live in these uh, mangrove habitats. And we're also working now with local fishermen to try to plant mangroves where they have been lost and sustainably harvest products from mangroves like crabs and potentially honey that they can uh, lead a livelihood from. So we're trying to create conservation-based livelihoods that can transform 
these uh, lost ecosystems, uh, not just for the fishing cat, but also for the local and global communities of people. Dr. Ashwin Naidu, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Tony, and thank you to NPR as well. The day that I was born, Neil Armstrong, he was walking on the moon. And down here on Earth, my parents were token on some pretty good weed. <laughs> Rain Pryor grew up surrounded by show business, thanks to the immense success of her father, Richard Pryor. His career was just starting to take off when Rain was born in 1969, the fourth of his seven children. Her mother was a go-go dancer who became a writer and astronomical historian. Growing up, Rain spent a lot of time with her grandparents on her mother's side, who she says gave her a traditional Jewish upbringing. In her 20s, Rain found success as an actress and singer, and almost reluctantly as a comedian. Those talents, and the two worlds into which she was born, are all explored in a live show she created in 2004 called Fried Chicken and Latkes. While it's a one-woman performance, Rain Pryor doesn't have room to get lonely on stage. Well, I play about, I think, 11 to 12 characters. So the show is talking about growing up in the late 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and politically what was going on, racially what was going on, viewed through my eyes of what I went through. So I have my grandmother, my bubby, on you know my mother's side of the family. My mother was Jewish, my father not. And... Um, you know, and then I have my dad's grandmother, Mama, who ran a brothel and has her point of view about, you know, the world as we see it. My mother, there's me, there's kids I went to school with, like, oh, my God, totally for sure. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Like, you know, it's, 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 um, it's a show that makes you think, it makes you laugh, it makes you cry. Well, you and I are about three months apart in age, so so we grew up in very different worlds, but at the same time. So that's kind of neat and to you me. Get it. And we it's, still, yeah. what happened? You know, last time I looked in the mirror, I was like twenty six. Like, what what happened to I know to our generation? First of all, I still don't look my generation. Mark, do you still look your generation? I don't, I don't think I do generation. now. No, I yeah, think when I, I had don't. a rat tail, I think I looked my generation <laughs> then. Funny because my husband and I just had that conversation. Like, I think somehow we're still in high school, but then we look and we're like, oh, we're parents, you know? <laughs> like, we go to sleep at nine o'clock. Like, well, who does that? You know, I have my own business as well as I'm in the process of creating a fried chicken and lockers is becoming a TV series. So I'm in development with Norman Lear and Will Gluck. And so it's like my life sometimes I'm up really late, but usually I'm up at five because I bake cookies. So I've been doing that. So it's it's like, yeah, <laughs> I'm up before normal people are up. <laughs> That's really exciting that you're working with Norman Lear on a TV project. Can you tell us how you made a connection with Norman Lear? Well, you know, working on the show in Los Angeles in 2016 to 2017 with Eve Brandstein, 
who actually used to be a casting director for Norman Lear. You know, it's like the Hollywood story. An agent comes, you sign with the agent. She's like, you really should be pitching to these people. And we go and meet with them. And they say, oh, my God, this is a great idea. And he came to the show and he was like, we have to make this into a TV series. He really wanted at one time to do a project with my dad and Robin Williams. And it never happened. And so he was excited, you know, and he felt it was kind of full circle. You also have written a book about your upbringing, and I thought the title was was really funny and kind of ironic. <laughs> Jokes My Father Never Taught Me, Life, Love, and Loss with Richard Pryor. What's the most important thing that you want our listeners to understand about your relationship with your father? Because I think people sometimes finding out who you are, they might make some assumptions. I think the most important part is that my relationship with my father was very honest to a fault at times. Um, He was a very truthful man. And when he was a dad, he was a dad. You know, he wasn't Richard Pryor to us. He was daddy. And he was on as dad and he was off as dad. He wasn't perfect and he made mistakes, you know. And you learn kind of how to love someone for exactly who they are, faults and all. And the great thing is hopefully you become better than them. And I hope that I that I have in my own way, in the way that I live my life. Like, I'm a parent. My daughter will never experience the things I experienced, you know, growing up. Like, she has what I would call the normal life. I've created this amazing normal life. My dad wanted that. He was Richard Pryor, but we didn't grow up like the Hilton. You know, like, I'm not Paris Hilton. I wish. Sometimes I was, because I like, you know. Now, be careful what you wish for, right? (laughs) Right? Look, like I said, sometimes, (laughs) but I didn't, you know, like we were exposed to everything, but then kept away from it. That's how it was. It was like, you know, this is what I do and it's wrong. You're not going to do it. (laughs) And you're like, okay, dad, whatever you say. And by the way, I don't want to be like that when I grow up. (laughs) What has exploring your life in this way, this very unique and public way taught you? I think what it's taught me is that As much as we've come forward, culturally, we're also backwards. We keep going in this loop because we know kind of where we want to go. We want to all just get along, but we don't know how. So then we go back to our tribalism. And so if anything, the show has taught me that what I thought was so special about 1970s and 80s, we're going through right now in 2019. Did it feel like a weight on you that maybe sometimes you felt you weren't black enough or you weren't Jewish enough? Mark, I'm not black enough. I'm not Jewish enough. I'm not white enough. I'm never going to be enough for other people. Every side wants you to pick an allegiance, at least for me as a mixed race, biracial woman. I cannot decide, nor do I want to decide I'm on this side or I'm on that side. Now, My daughter identifies herself as a black Jewish girl. She doesn't even understand why other people don't get it. She doesn't care about fitting in. She's like, that's just who I am. The U of A Hillel Foundation presents Rain Pryor's Fried Chicken and Latkes for one performance, Saturday, February 16th at the Leo Rich Theater. We just heard how Rain Pryor's relationships with her mother and father inspire her to create art. Next... Two Poetic Snapshots in Emotional Time, written by someone who was thinking about his parents. 
Offspring by Brother B. A compilation of two moments. Male moment. Man by Brother B. Having happened as if hit like lightning had striked. As if as fast as a precious present minute in an instant becomes fragments of past moments kept in secret, grabbed and as if with one single motion slammed so damn quick, my back within seconds laid flat across the top of an old shag carpet. As if round about midnight moonlight had cast through the window syncopated shadows into a jazz room jam session improvising male mood indigo blues feeling fingers firmly pressing the flesh around my neck two hands wrapped tight passing so-called tough love down by my pop smacked up jacked up snatched up no man would let a man do that said pop silent as a movie gazing upon his eyes like screens still shots like scenes i shall never forget is not my pop a man yes yet to me i see men as others my pop is my father female moment flowers by brother bing in charm city being blessed living life like it's a gift in bliss breath by precious breath believing love does exist in her solitude content enjoying peace like presence in her humble apartment painting pictures of deserts in a text she sent my mama pumpkin asked this midge what are the colors of the flowers on the cactus thinking about an answer in response to her question feeling a special pleasure in my mind i reminisce inspiring images in my past as I witnessed traveling through time and space in an enlightened spirit, finding fresh fruit for my soul in warm, moist, golden soils, doing seasonal monsoons in a sentimental mood, making memorable moments in century-old gardens, discovering fulfillment in pursuit of happiness. Brother B is Robert Beverly, a Tucson poet and playwright. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.